Good evening, and welcome to a special edition of Black Ink Red Film. I'm your host, Stephen Newton, and with me tonight is... Stephen Payne, and we're here to talk about the 2019 remake of Pet Cemetery. So, as our loyal listeners will know, we actually did Pet Cemetery as, I believe it was our first episode. It was our first episode. Yeah, so episode one. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to talk about the 2019 remake we covered the novel back in episode one, so we're not going to talk too much about the novel, but as is our style on this show, we are going to talk about the decisions that the filmmakers made that significantly altered the characters or the plot of the story by what they did in the film. So with that, let us get into the meat of it. So Stephen E., before we really talk about some of the differences, why don't you tell us what you thought of Pet Cemetery 2019? Well, I hated it. And the thing about it, the comparison here for me isn't between the 2019 film version and the book. It's between the 2019 film version and the, what was it, 1989 film version that we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as horribly flawed as the original film was, it's somehow, I still enjoyed it a lot more. It's campiness, unintentional or otherwise, and just some of the the morbid goofiness of it, I think just made it a more entertaining film than this new glum, dark, and just, in many ways, fundamentally stupid film. I mean, Mm. I really, really had a problem with it. Despite a couple of things, decisions in the changes to the story that I think it did well, it just, in general, didn't execute very well. And I, I'm going to go back to something one of the film critics said about it after having re- hated the first film, hated this one. The critic said, maybe this book just isn't meant to be adapted. Hmm. Because the problem with the story is that, I mean, the original novel, even though I said we weren't going to talk much about the novel, but I'm talking about the novel. Go ahead. I'll talk about the novel then. Was that... The novel relied heavily on the creepiness of its, the effectiveness of its thematic elements and the inherent creepiness of it. That was a lot of elements were so effective that you overlooked the fundamental massive holes in the plot and some just inherent corniness and, and problems with the dialogue. Neither film has been able to overcome that obstacle. But again, I think the 89 version handled its handled it in a, a more a almost EC comic creep show style goofiness and morbidness that was just more fun than this version, which is just um it it just doesn't work. It's unpleasant and it's inherently stupid. Okay. Well I would not give it as harsh a review. I wouldn't say I hated it. In the in the spirit of this podcast where we talk about the differences of the film versus the book, I'm I'm gonna stay away from the the original of the 1989, the Mary Lambert film. And what I will say is I think Pet Cemetery 2019 really loses the soul of the novel. And I, and I will tell you why. I'll agree with that. So 2019 Pet Cemetery compared to the novel, the thing about the novel that makes it particularly effective for me is the bad decisions that the characters keep making. And, you know, we won't go too much down the the plot summary, 
but they they made some effective changes in terms of it's Ellie versus Gage who gets brought back to life and whatnot. But I think the thing that they they missed on in the third act of this film is it's Ellie who buries the wife, right? So when the wife comes home, when Rachel comes home, um, it's Ellie who actually buries her, and then it's the two of them. So this whole it is the malevolent spirit that's like preying on humans as opposed to uh, Lewis's character can, you know, burying the cat, realizing that was a bad idea, burying Gage anyway, realizing that was a bad idea. And then he buries his wife at the end, even though we all know that that was a bad idea. So it, it really missed the, that, that Lewis just keeps making more and more bad decisions, which I think is the heart of the book. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, again, for me, one of the things was the film fails to correct the, uh, well, not only does it fail to correct some of the artistic choices and storytelling problems with the first film, it actually brings in new ones. Right. So it doubles down on it, on, on problems, essentially. And I agree. It's just for you to buy a lot of what happens in the story, which is hard to do, quite frankly. Even the book struggles with it a little bit. You have to really sell these things. And you have to be able to buy that someone was at a point of desperation that they would have done you know, by the third rung of burying the, the, you know, burying his wife, that he would realize, you know, yeah, maybe this wasn't such a great idea since the return on investment at that point has been had been nothing but bad or right. sour, as they might say in yeah, the book and yeah. the story. So, um, and, and and again, elements such as Sister Zelda is introduced one once again much less effectively in the first film, and she was always just sort of, I never, I don't think she really fit in the story to begin with anyway. Um, once again, they had one child too many. In the first film, I didn't think Ellie added any value to the film whatsoever. In this film, I don't think Gage adds any value to the film whatsoever, other than basically they do a fake out with who gets run over by the truck. A scene which, by the way, is so embarrassingly badly shot that it totally fails to stick the landing. Well, not only that, they they spoil that in the in the trailer. Well, yeah, they, they yeah they they spoil it in the trailer. Although I get why, because I think they wanted to. to to show, oh yeah, there's going to be something different here, we promise. And I right. actually agreed with the decision of Ellie coming back to life because it made more sense for Ellie at a, a little older age for her to actually be capable of killing people than for Gage in the first film essentially coming back as a Chucky doll right. and, and becoming an adversary. So um, that so, yeah, so, let's, let's, so that's a big one. So let's talk about that yeah. a little bit. And I, I don't know if we need to talk about it any more than that. The big One of the big plot twists in this one is obviously Ellie being brought back. Do you think that changed, uh, clearly it changed the character, but do you think it changed the intent of the story at all? Not really. I don't think so. I mean, it's been a little while since I read the book now, and, and frankly, I try to forget about the new movie altogether. But I don't think it did. I mean, I think for me, the whole thing would have been effective both in the book and the movie if there had been one child. Hmm. Your only child just got run over by the truck. Right. And in this case, in both cases, I think it made more sense if the only child had been had been Ellie. So I don't think it changed anything because, again, the whole, the whole theme were about the dealing with grief and loss and and having a way out of it yet things going badly, Frankenstein style. So I don't think it really changed anything about the story, at least not in a not in a negative way. So what I would say is. So I, I can see why Stephen King put in the two characters and, you know, in, in the novel, Ellie has The Shining. 
to me what it does is that it made it a different kind of horror film because in this film unlike the first film what you have is ellie coming back as a zombie and then interacting with her dad as zombie ellie right asking him questions am i dead you know and i can't remember the rest of the dialogue but basically there's that whole montage of Lewis combing her hair. I remember that was one of the right, scenes right, in there right. and like seeing the stitches in her. So right. that's, that's a different kind of horror. So I would say it does change the character, but what I would say is it makes the horror different. So like we talked about the type of horror that the first film is. So it's not only, so it's not only Lewis making the bad decisions. It's also the, the Judd Randall character, Crandall, Randall, the Judd character, because Judd, knows that he shouldn't be showing Lewis the pet cemetery and he does it anyway and he thinks he couldn't, you know, it's also there's all these people making the bad decisions. Right. We talked about this back in episode one of the power of the place that kind of draws these people into making bad decisions. So anyway, going back to my original thought. Yeah, so I think Ellie Ellie coming back and having being able to communicate, which we didn't have in the first film, definitely makes definitely makes a different type of like you're interacting with these demons like you didn't get a chance to do in the first film right the only thing he interacted with in the first film is the cat you know demon right right and by the way in the new film the cat is a terrific actor it's a shame the cat in real life actually passed away because i remember that was one of the things that was pointed out in the reviews the cat was really good in the movie and it was yeah the cat it was a spooky cat i think it just died recently it did yeah yeah around the time grumpy cat did so draw your own conclusions so um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about Judd. I, I think John Lithgow is a terrific, terrific actor. And um, I don't really know how I like the new Judd. I, they definitely changed the character. So Judd in this one is kind of jaded and salty. And so I don't know if that's better or worse. Because I go in with a bias of a guy who's read the novel and seen the first film and have done podcast on it. So I don't know... If you were to, listeners out there, if you've never read the novel or seen the first film, what did you think of this? What did you think of Judd's character? That would be interesting to know because it's, it's hard for me to look at that untainted, unbiased, but definitely a different character. They definitely portrayed him differently. I think it's actually, I mean, there's nothing wrong with John Lithgow. I mean, he's, yeah. he, but it's an underwritten character in this film. Right. Again, a lot of his motive, he's basically there in the new film to, to be kind of the the harbinger of doom and and the infamous exposition guy, which apparently most movies need to have. Mm-hmm. Um, his motivation in, in the film really isn't very clear. I mean, in the first film, it was maybe because Fred Gwynn found the right note of of dread and ham to hit with his character, and made him kind of this lovable mm-hmm. lovable guy who we knew held some 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 horrible secrets. And, you know, quite frankly, in the new film, any little bit of humor and it would have kind of been nice yeah. to have. But the, the character... Yeah, I don't think there was any lighthearted no, was no, no, none yeah. at all. No, which made it all the, you know, all the more of a drag to sit through. But I, the, the Judd character in the new film really just doesn't... There's nothing memorable about it. It's underwritten. And uh, once again, I don't think his motivation or anything he does in the film is, is totally justified or, or useful. Right. So that is one of the big casualties and differences is the novel especially really builds up the friendship between Judd and Lewis. And that's not explored at all in the in this film. Um, it was kind of explored in the first film, but it's not explored at all here. Well, they missed two key things. Interestingly enough, in, 
in the novel, part of the reason that Judd agrees to take, now I already forgot the lead. Lewis. Of, Lewis, thank <laughs> yes. you very much. Lewis up to the up to the pet cemetery is because Lewis helped save Judd's wife's life. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was really the inciting incident, if you will, of him doing that. So it made sense to a degree for Judd to do that, to gamble a little bit and help mm. Lewis out. Yeah. Judd's wife doesn't make the cut in either film. She just flat out is not in either film. Right. So you've already got that missing. She was and kind of replaced by, like, the housekeeper in the first film. She sort of is, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And also the backstory of Judd and Timmy Baderman, the guy who he witnessed when he was when he was younger being resurrected right. from the bed, that's missing as well from the new film, although it was in the original film. And again, it just seemed Judd's motivations, therefore, without any real backstory or context, just they seem obligatory. Again, he seems to be put in this film for no other reason than to be the exposition guy who artificially helps move the characters forward towards a stupid plot. Right. I think the Timmy Baderman, it's been so gentle viewers, readers, listeners. It's been about a couple of weeks, months actually now. So we saw this. Aprilish. Yeah, Aprilish. And we're now in the first week of July. Julyish. So I'm going off my notes. I do believe they, there's a montage where Lewis is looking up the history books and he's looking at the maps. And I think there's like some newspaper clippings of Timmy Baderman in there. So Which that's is a, one of those, yeah. like if you're, if you read the novel, you might catch that Easter egg, but otherwise you're, you know, if you were out getting popcorn at all, you're going to miss that whole part of it. Yeah. I was going to say for all I remember there, maybe he maybe mentioned it in a, in, in during one of his ramblings, but, or, but yeah, otherwise, you know, when things are relegated to the, to the, newspaper clipping microfilm cliche then you know you're in trouble yeah exactly right (laughs) okay so what else i want to talk about here rachel comes home with gage and where she is confronted by resurrected ellie Mm -hmm. so this is a big change Mm -hmm. from from the novel and from the first film and the rachel care i think it actually makes rachel a little bit more interesting to be honest but I think it. what it does is she knows immediately that this is an abomination and that needs to be dealt with, right? So she's, I can't remember exactly how it happens, but she needs to, she's trying to get Gage out of the house and gets whacked by Ellie at some point and in her dying breath says, don't bury me up there. So she knows, she kind of knows what's up with, with Lewis at this point. So I think she actually, I think that's an improvement to the character. I will actually give it to her from both the novel and the, um, the original movie. I honestly, the Zelda character, you, you can't not have Zelda. But from what I recall, apparently I was out getting popcorn in the brief moments that Rachel interacted with her step, with her parents. I mean, the whole drama between Rachel's parents and Lewis, I don't think was explored at all in this. You know, it's just one more point of tension and family tension that just hit the cutting room floor. Yeah, I don't remember. I mean, Rachel in the I, Rachel's not a very good character in any of the in, in any of the versions, the book or the two movies. In my opinion, I mean, it almost seems like the whole reason she exists is for Lewis to have this conflict with his in laws and for the sisters' eldest flashbacks, yeah. which frankly don't really even need to be in the movie. They're just remembered because they were the most effective part of the first film. I if I had been tasked with writing with writing this movie and had been free of the bond of anybody else having input into it, I might have just made Lewis a widower with a single child, Ellie. Yeah. And maybe if you really needed to shoehorn the sister Zelda 
subplot in there. It's his sister. So, um, or even his late wife, for that matter. Right. I mean, there's some thing because otherwise she doesn't seem to add a tremendous, no offense to the actresses, but the character doesn't add a tremendous amount of value to anything other than ultimately be another villain. And for another reason for Lewis to make a bad decision, which happens, I get it. So, I mean, they're probably, the, the bottom line is you could have done this better if, but you're not going to get your A players on this subject matters. Right. Pretty clear about that. So there probably was a way of doing this with the characters and the intent, but it would have been tricky. And I don't, again, I don't think they nailed it with either film. And I think even in the novel, Rachel seems like she's sort of a, a, a parallel storyline that doesn't always completely gel. You know what? I think that's a great point. And I think if you've got any aspiring screenwriters out there, they make a remake about every 20 years, you get to go ahead for a remake. I would actually make Rachel the main character. Make Rachel the main character, make her a widower, make her have an only child, and I think you can still tell Pet Cemetery. Yeah, that's true. I, I you agree know, with you. you can even put in like the sheriff as a love interest if you want to and bring another character into it and yeah. maybe it's the sheriff that's like doing something. But I think that would actually or maybe a sequel, right? If you want or a reboot, you know, Pet Cemetery. Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean it would work it would work. All right. Okay, so the last big piece that I want to talk about is one of the plot holes. Um, so just so we we wrap it up in in how this movie ends, uh, Rachel comes home with Gage, gets knocked out by Ellie, who kills Rachel, drags her up to the pet cemetery. Lewis chases up there, and then they both get whacked, and you see Ellie and Rachel carrying Lewis off. He gets buried, and then as we all know, if you've seen the movie, the final scenes are. The entire zombie family is walking down the hill and they're going to take out Gage, who's been sitting alone in the car this whole time. So as I watched that, it, what it made me just think is, okay, so clearly this spirit, the Wendigo, is is able to create zombie. These things have agency now and they're trying to take over the world. So it's like, they would have taken over this whole town by now. So why did it take so long to even get... You know, if you were able to create three or four little zombies in, you know, such a short period of time, you know, there wouldn't have been a Derry, Maine or Portland, Maine or wherever the hell they're at in this movie. So I think that was a bit of a plot hole. But, yeah, you had to change it up, right? You had to do something. Well, you also ask key questions like how freaking big is the cemetery anyway? Right, right. But, well, true story. Absolutely true story. When I saw this movie in the theater, and I had all but checked out by the time the ending came on, when the ending came on and the, basically the zombie family, if you will, gets back together and the credits roll, I said out loud in the theater, oh good, the backstory to the Adams family. <laughs> it's true. To which right? I got laughs around me because yeah. everybody else kind of saw, yeah, that's what we did here. Allegedly in the new Blu-ray DVD, for those of you still in that technology or digital format, there is an alternate ending. I have no clue what it is. Oh. So that's what I read. So I don't know. Maybe I might... <laughs> Anybody wants to write in and tell us what it is if they see it, please do. I'm, I have no intention of watching it. Yeah, well, I think two podcasts on Pet Cemetery is probably enough. Maybe we can touch on it in a Q&A episode. I would perfectly fine with that. I will say one thing I think they did well, but again, they failed to fully earn it or stick the landing. One of the th- elements in the book that I thought was terrific that harkened back to the whole Wendigo concept 
was that when people come back, they've again in the book. What's implied is that when you're buried into the into the cemetery, there are evil spirits in the ground that are looking for a host, and they come up into the into the body of the person who's buried, and then they're not very nice about it. Right. And in the book, there's the effect of scenes with the flashback of Timmy Baderman and with Gage coming back is that they're saying some pretty vile things. Right. Like, you know, but I think Gage is telling Judd about his wife. Yeah, this, that, we know what thing. she did, yeah. Right, right. If I'm not mistaken in the new movie, the Ellie actually does that in a brief scene when she's offing, uh, about to kill um, Judd. She does. So I'm thinking, man, if that had been better earned or better developed, that would have that would have been one thing they would have done much better. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad they hold that back into the mm-hmm. book right so yeah. I, I think that was a good call to just once again show that you were not dealing with you know a resurrection you were dealing with a different creature an right. evil creature at this point right because you're right you're dealing with the wendigo spirit right you were not yeah. you know this is a new spirit that's inhabited these things yeah. which are evil in their own right okay so we're going to pause here and um again this is a shorter episode because we're not going to be talking about the novel at all and we're going to do a little bit of housekeeping So we did get a little bit of email between now and our last episode. So we did, we did indeed. I'll be. So the first one is from my friend Tom Byrne, who tells me it's definitely Wendigo. 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 So apparently we were pronouncing that incorrectly in the first episode. You were pronouncing it. I had it. I was. I've always said Wendigo correctly. So we've got another email here from Wallace Graziano, who writes in and says. I think you have a great podcast, and it's really interesting to listen to. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Wallace. That's terrific, and we plan on doing so. So um, we appreciate you and others sticking with us through this, and uh, there will be much more to come. So thank you very much for those kind words. Yes. Um, uh, Wallace is one of our younger listeners, so we, uh, we, we appreciate him taking the time out of his busy day to to make that happen. And we definitely could use the demographic uh, variance, <laughs> yes. Right. It must have been Corey. It was our guest star, Corey, that no doubt. Oh, there you go. All right, well, you know, we'll, we'll do some market research later yeah. and see what works. I, have to, I actually have, um, in fact, your father was one of them. Uh, I, I've gotten several comments on how well Corey did. So thank you, everybody, who listened to our last yes, episode with Corey and gave her a little props. And then the um, the last email I want to touch on here is Ray Wisniewski writes in and he says, Hey, loving the podcast so far. I had a question for the show. I think Mr. Murdoch did a fantastic job with the theme music. It has a strong phantasm slash exorcism vibe with a little bit of carpenter thump. What were his influences for creating this track for the podcast? Now, I know. Oh, and he, and he closes with wishing you the best on the podcast. Can't wait for the Who Goes There episode. Ooh, that'll be good. That will be good. I just actually uh, finished that story a while back, so I can't wait to read that one as well. So instead of me saying the answer, which I kind of know because I worked with Mr. Murdoch on uh, creating the theme music, I'm going to let him tell you in his own words. So here's Matt. Hi, this is Matt Murdoch. The, the music for the Black Ink Red film podcast was primarily inspired by the main theme from the 1977 Italian horror film Suspiria. Uh, that music was done by the Italian prog group Goblin, uh, and I'm sure Stephen E. Payne can give you a full rundown on that movie. I'm pretty sure he was the person that introduced me to the idea that there were Italian horror films worth watching. 
though I've never actually seen the movie. Uh, when Steven Newton asked me to do the music, I, I just went online and started listening to a bunch of horror movie themes because I'm actually not really a horror movie fan. Um, but that Suspiria main theme was just one that jumped out at me as something I could emulate successfully. Um, as I worked on it, I, I decided I wanted to put sort of a futuristic slant on it. Also, um, being a fan of a lot of uh, 70s and early 80s synthesizer music. Um, and I'm sure I had in the back of my mind the uh, music from Escape from New York by John Carpenter. I've always been a fan of that movie ever since it came out and also a fan of the, the soundtrack. Um, there's also like a jazzy guitar chord in there. Um, I think that was a little nod to the um, Prisoner soundtracks um, from the 1960s Patrick McGowan TV show. Um, I've had those soundtracks for years and there's all these kind of weird guitar moments in there. Um, Anyway, be seeing you. Thank you. Bye. Okay, so that's it for our show. Once again, thanks everybody for listening in. This is a little bit of a bonus episode, so shorter than usual. I am I am the slacker here, so I am about halfway through Dracula, but next regularly scheduled episode should be Dracula. Although I don't think we've determined which film we're going film slash films we're going to read to compare it to. If it's going to be Christopher Lee or Bela Lugosi. Well, this is this is a complicated one, and and folks, this is one thing. And and you know what? If you have any suggestions for how you'd like us to approach it, please write in because one of the challenges with Dracula is not only do we have, of course, the the you know the legendary novel, but we have coming up on quite literally a hundred years of movie and pop culture uh, going along with it. So, right. not going to cover all of it in a half hour. Yeah. So we either need to have a really figure out what our focus is with it or have multiple episodes with it. Either way, I'm perfectly fine. But if any of you have some suggestions for how you'd like us to approach the material, um, we definitely open for suggestions because creatively we could use all the help we need. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> so once again, our email address is blackinkredfilm at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group. We have a Twitter page. We have an Instagram feed. I do not have MeWe, like I said we did, but I'm on MeWe if you want to reach out to me directly. I'm working on getting a sandwich board and standing on the street. <laughs> that will work. That will work. We'll do some snaps. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. You've been listening to Black Ink Red Film with your hosts Stephen Newton and Stephen E. Payne. Music was created by Matthew Murdoch. Please send any comments, questions, or requests to blackinkredfilm at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for listening.